This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, beer fans, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and give you their tips, tricks, and secrets about how they brew beer. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding ways to check it out. All right, and on today's episode, we're going to cover a few things. And first, obviously, we'll start with some feedback and our usual announcements and also a little bit about our last charity effort. So given the response that we got from our last episode, where the IBU is a lie where we talked about the results of our IBU test and our interviews with both Dana Garvis and uh, Glenn Tenzeth. We had a lot of feedback from people about that, and we decided, you know, it, let's keep the discussion going. So today, we're actually going to have a special treat. We're pulling in a couple of our Igors who helped us out with the IBU experiment and having them talk to us about their brew day that they did for this experiment and what their perceptions were, and uh, just to see in comparison about, like, how they brew versus the IBU results that we got from them. Uh, obviously, we'll also spend some time in the pub. We're going to go to the library, and then we're going to head out to Fargo, and we're going to talk to the folks at Flatland Brewing Company. A little interview there. Yeah, and uh, we're going to be skipping our usual Q&A segment today because uh, in just three more episodes, episode 36, we're doing an all-question-and-answer show. So please send in those questions now to questions at experimentalbrew.com. And, uh, you know, m maybe we can get your question on the show. The other thing you can do is phone in your question to our hotline, which is 626-765-1-ALE. Just give us a call and leave us a message with your question for us. And uh, who knows, you may end up on the show. Indeed. And hey, don't forget, 
This is always fun when we do these questions. So if you get a chance, if you have a question that has some, eh, maybe some nuances to it, some technical difficulties, or it may just be something you've never heard us talk about before, give us a little extra time, get your questions in now, and we can actually do some research and maybe actually sound like we know what we're talking about. Yeah, right. We'll have a decent chance of giving you a correct answer. But before we get into the show, we want to let you know about uh, how you can support the podcast and our charity. If you go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, you can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine or the American Homebrewers Association link to join the AHA and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. And when you do either one of those, uh, a little bit of money kicks back to the show to help support what we're doing. Or you can support our charity, the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society, by clicking on the Patreon link and giving any amount that you choose. And uh, we'll use it to help support uh, their rescue work with dogs, because we love dogs. Indeed. Uh, so so help us out, and uh, we'll help them out, and everybody will help each other, and it'll be a groovy kind of thing. Remember, don't you want to give a buck for a pooch? Why not? And I'll mention that our previous charity for the last six months of 2016 was the Children's Tumor Foundation, and uh, we'll be making a donation to them in the amount of $688. Thanks to all of you, and I mean thanks to all of you. It's a, a great cause, and you're great people to help out, and uh, so let's keep it up for the Humane Society. Yeah, let's see if we can make a cool $1,000. Boy, that would be cool indeed. Okay, so uh, what else we got to chat about here? Well, all right, so before we get into the rest of the meat of the episode, uh, just a quick reminder, we have launched a new show. If you're a regular subscriber to the podcast, you've already seen episode two of The Brew Files has now dropped, where I get to talk about one of my favorite styles, cream ale. Uh, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, go to the website, experimentalbrew.com, and download the episode. What's really cool about The Brew Files, it's 30 minutes long. So real quick hit, <laughs> short focused episode, uh, all about a particular brewing technique or uh, brew style. Very first episode was Danny and I talking about two of our favorite recipes. Second episode is cream ale, and we've got a lot more things coming online. Yeah, the brew files is really cool because it is focused. Uh, in this show, we try and hit a, a lot of different topics and cover a, a lot of, of range in the beer world. But the brew files is focused and... Uh, <laughs> What can I say? It's hard for us to be focused, but it comes off pretty well. Well, let's face it. This hobby is very diffusive in nature. So please give the new show a listen. Give us your feedback. If you've got ideas for things that you want us to talk about on the brew files, go ahead and you know how to get a hold of us. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com, Facebook, or just about anywhere else that you see Danny and I hanging out. We'll take your suggestions. We'll run with it. And hey, if we remember, we'll even give you credit. That's right. So, um, we, uh, got some email this week, kind of taking us to task for something we said in, uh, in a previous show, huh? Well, not really taking us to task. I've gotten a little bit of feedback on this in the past, and I think it's time that we give a little clarification. So obviously Denny and I are no great big fans of ABI or Miller Coors or Tenth and Blake or High Life or, uh, ZX Ventures or any of the sort of big shadowy companies that are running out there. And we tend to, uh, well, we tend to direct a little bit of, I don't know, what would you put, uh, criticism, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of uh, poking uh, in their directions. And yeah. 
time to kind of step back for a half a second because I do think this is important for us to say because I know there are people out there uh, who are listening to the podcast who either know people who work for these companies or who work for these companies. And I really do want to make sure that everybody understands. We don't like the particular directions these companies take, but that's the company. You know, if you know, we're talking about the people, I know a lot of people who still work for breweries owned now by ABI. And you know what? I still like those people. I still like the fact that they're good brewers, the ones I know. Uh, I just don't like the company they work for. So remember as you know, we say, well, one, just remember as we sit here and we say these sorts of things, the judgment that we're passing, the, the sarcasm that we're sending out there, the sort of eye rolling that we're giving is directed at the companies and not necessarily the individuals, unless the individuals happen to be very stupid. Yeah, I mean, let's just always remember, it's it's only beer. Uh, let's not take it personally. No, it's only beer. It's more important than personal. <laughs> well, maybe to you. Uh, me, I maintain my it's only beer attitude. Well, there you go. All right, and then the rest of our feedback that we got this week was almost all associated with the hop experiment that we did last week or that we announced last week. And... We're going to dive into that a little bit later in the lab, but I really wanted to say we got a lot of great ideas. I'm sitting here. I've got my notebook in front of me, the magical notebook that if something doesn't end up in, it doesn't exist in my life. Uh, and I had at least four more experiments come in from people listening to the results of our IBU episode and offering their suggestions about different things to try. So uh, needless to say... I guess we're going to be doing some more hop experiments. Glenn and I, via email, have been talking uh, about uh, doing an experiment to find out if it's increased gravity or the proteins from that increased gravity that uh, really make a difference in uh, IBU amounts in beer. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, we talked to Dana about that also, and uh, hopefully we'll be getting together something on that line and we will also be testing it with both whole hops and pellets. Mm-hmm. This will be fun. Yep. Okay, man. I don't know about you, but I'm thirsty. How about if we head over to the pub? Okay. <laughs> he always sounds so resigned when I tell him it's time to have a beer. All righty. We're going to head over to the pub, talk about the beer life, and we will be right back. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I have done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Welcome back, everybody. We are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers. What are you drinking today, Mr. B? Uh, well, you know, I just recently stumbled across a new brewery because, of course, it seems like uh, still we're in this phase where I can't walk around my town without stumbling across a new brewery. And uh, on the way back home the other day, I came across Frogtown Brewing Company. 
located in the historic Frog, uh, Frogtown district of Los Angeles. Uh, that's right along the LA River, so hence the frogs. Uh, but they uh, <laughs> they they are a brand new brewery. They've been open since October. Tiny little place, but still actually you know growing like mad. And so I'm having their session IPA that they had. And you know what was really nice about their session IPA? It, had, it actually had flavor and body. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. What was the alcohol? Uh, 4.7. 4.7? So, depending upon your definition of session, maybe not. But hey, close enough. Close enough. Yeah, really, man. Well, I am, um, I'm drinking an experimental beer that I made. Um, we are uh, in the process of working on a new project. And I needed to uh, try out some theories, so I uh, I made a two-gallon brew-in-a-bag batch of beer uh, with a 20-minute mash and a 20-minute boil. And I'm uh, I'm sitting here drinking this beer right now. It's delicious, although I'm not going to give away all the uh, all the info about it at the moment. Uh, but I will tell you that this beer has lacing down the sides of the glass like. I have never seen, and uh, one of my uh, suppositions is that the shorter mash didn't allow too much time for the uh, the beta amylase to work, and uh, that's why I'm getting such great lacing on it. So well, there you go. we'll now see. I'm just gonna think of you as a Denny Con twenty minute man. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. That was uh, that was just a first test, and I have to do some more to kind of uh, verify what I found. As we all know, the key to science is repeatability. If you do it once, it's a data point. If you do it over and over and over with the same results, it's a conclusion. Well, there you go. I'm still concluding. You're a 20-minute man. <laughs> go right ahead. So we got a couple things to talk about, and they both concern bottles, huh? Yeah, you know, so the very first one, and this one's important for everybody to know about, uh, Sierra Nevada, uh, who are good friends of ours and are really excellent brewers and obviously yeah. have grown into a massively scaled organization with two breweries, uh, one in Chico and the other one over in Mills River, North Carolina, just issued a recall. Uh, for certain beers being brewed uh, out of uh, Mill River, so on the East Coast. And up on their website, and we'll include the link for this, they have a link, sierranevada.com slash quality matters, and they list out the production dates and which particular things that they're worried about. Uh, and it's a pretty wide swath for about a month where they had a issue with the glass that came into the, the plant. Uh, they're saying it's about one in every 10,000 bottles. They're literally pulling back almost all the beer they brewed out of Mills River uh, for the month of December. Yeah, um, you know, to me, it's just a great indication of what a wonderful company Sierra Nevada is. I mean, you would hope and expect that any brewery would do this, but they have such a dedication to customer satisfaction and quality. It was great to see that there was no hesitation, no prevarication, they just went ahead and did the right thing on a massive scale. Yeah, so that's uh, the Pale Ale, the Torpedo Extra IPA, the Tropical Torpedo, the Tropical Torpedo, uh, Sidecar Orange Pale Ale, Beer Camp Golden IPA, Otrevez, Nooner, and Hop Hunter IPA, uh, all out of Mills River. So if you see that your product was brewed in Mills River, then you really do uh, want to take care of that. You can go visit their link and get the details. But uh, if you're over here on the West Coast, 
Uh, not so much to worry about. We don't get the Mills River beer over here. Cool, cool. Well, at least we're okay. So then uh, the other bottle story involves Firestone Walker, right? Yeah, so this one I actually, I wanted to talk about this because I thought this was interesting uh, from a trend point of view. So we all know that for whatever reason, American microbreweries kind of glommed onto the idea of the 22-ounce bomber bottle, or uh, I think Stone for a while was trying to get people to refer to it as the dinner bottle. <laughs> and the, the what bottle? The dinner bottle. Dinner bottle, like you drink it with your dinner. Yeah, like this is what you have at the dinner table. Okay. You know, instead, instead of having a bottle of wine, you have a 22-ounce dinner bottle of beer. All right. It is what it is. So Firestone Walker has done 22-ounce bottles for ever and a day, and that has always included their big series of beers, you know, their proprietor reserve series, all the special ones. So uh, Bravo, their anniversary series, the... The, the different vintage reserves. Uh, all of these beers have always been sold in 22-ounce bottles, which is great, except for take the Anniversary Ale. The Anniversary Ale is a massive beer. You know, it's, a, it's up in the teens. So you have the challenge of, I have a 22-ounce bottle of a big, strong beer. When am I going to drink it? And so it becomes kind of a special occasion thing, right? You have to have, like, four buddies around in order to be able to drink this without yeah, man, falling over. I can't. I can't tell you how many 22-ounce bottles have been sitting in my refrigerator for several years because they're just too strong and too much beer for me to open it and drink it myself. Yeah, so Firestone Walker announced that they are actually switching uh, away from the 22-ounce format for those uh, bottles and moving to the 12-ouncers. So these beers will now appear in 12-ounce bottles and not in 22s, which is interesting because it should allow for broader sales. Now, of course, the sneaky part about this is if you look at the pricing that they're doing, the 12-ounce bottles are more expensive per ounce. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> you know, that, that goes without saying. But on the other hand, if it means you can actually drink them as opposed to just leaving them in your fridge, or you can drink the whole thing as opposed to having to pour out the last thing because you're too drunk to finish it. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I know for some people out there, that's not an issue, but it certainly is for me. Yeah, well, and now, Denny, you and I both will remember this, and maybe our younger listeners won't, or the people who got into craft beer later, but whatever happened to the nip? <laughs> yeah, the 7-ounce bottle. It's, it's interesting. I was just cleaning up my garage the other day, and I found a couple dozen of those around, and I had the same theory. I mean, I remember when I started brewing, uh, like, for instance, uh, Rogue's Old Crustacean mm -hmm. Barley Wine was sold in those bottles. Yeah, I always think uh, Old Crusty and uh, Anchor Foghorn. Yeah. But, I mean, those, yeah. Were, those were the two beers I always think of in the nips. And if you don't know what a nip is, a nip is a little seven-ounce bottle. It looks like somebody took a champagne bottle and scaled it down. You know, honey, I shrunk the beer bottle. And yeah, um, you know, and, were, and I don't even think you can buy those anymore. You know, I I haven't looked in so long that I can't say for certain. But yeah, I don't really remember seeing them in like the last decade. The the rumor is that there was only one company making them, and they stopped. So you know, no, whether, how much truth there is to that rumor? Yeah, but so anyway. Uh, 
big props to Firestone Walker for going to 12-ounce bottles for their specialty beers. Uh, yeah, it may be a bit more expensive per ounce, but, you know, uh, we, we don't drink beer to save money, right? Yeah, and I'm going to say, I mean, I think if this, if this move allows us to have uh, fewer cellar holdovers, I'm fine with that. There is also the whole debate about, okay, well, but does beer bulk age better than in a tiny bottle, you know? Is that going to lead to different aging characteristics? I don't know. But what I want to know is, given this sort of thing, and given the number of passionate beer collectors we have listening to the podcast, what do you think? Do you think this is a move to be celebrated? Is this something that you want to see more breweries doing? Or do you want to go, dang nabbit, I want my big bottle. Give me back my big bottle. Yeah, well, you're drunk. What can I say? Yeah, whatever. You're ugly. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't think there's any debate about that. Okay, so uh, we're going to finish up these beers, and we're going to uh, head over to the library and talk about uh, another great hop article from uh, Scott Janish. So we'll be right back with that. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Time for everybody to be quiet. We're in the library. <laughs> My grandmother, the librarian, would look at this as we're talking right now and give me the big old hush. So don't mess with the librarians, but we are here in the library. We've got a really interesting article to talk about because uh, obviously today is yet another show that's really all about the hops. So we had touched on uh, Scott Janish's first article about dry hopping and its effect on IBUs. But he's followed up with a new article on the whole same premise. So, Denny, why don't you uh, go ahead and drop some science in for people from Scott? Basically, the the gist of the article is that contrary to uh, popular opinion, you can actually get bitterness, or at the very least the perception of it, into a beer by dry hopping. Uh, in short, this, this study that Scott is quoting found that humulinones, which are uh, more soluble than the iso-alpha acids uh, that we usually think of producing bitterness, that the humulinones are 66% as bitter as the iso-alpha acids and have a, a smoother bitterness to them. Uh, but the, they are highly soluble and uh, can be introduced at any point, uh, including through dry hopping. Uh, the alpha acids also dissolve into beer with dry hopping and uh, the, at an even higher concentration than the humulinones. But uh, the bitter potential of alpha acids is only about uh, 10% as bitter as what the iso-alpha acids, the isomerized alpha acids add. 
So uh, the other thing that was interesting was that they found that the starting IBU levels of the beer played a role in it, and that for beers in the 20 IBU range, dry hopping increased the perception of bitterness, whereas for beers uh, 30 or above, dry hopping could decrease the perception of bitterness. Now, interestingly enough, this goes back to the whole hops versus pellets thing that we were uh, talking about with Glenn on the last show. The reason that dry hopping can decrease the bitterness is that the leaf material can actually uh, pull some of these uh, isoalpha acids uh, and humulinones out of the solution in the beer. Now, remember, this is with whole hops. That's the leaf material. Uh, as far as I could see from this article, uh, there was nothing about the effect of pellet hops. Did you see anything like that? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, but I just really thought that this was kind of interesting for the fact that I mean, we're talking about in the last episode, we talked the IBU is a lie, right? Because the IBU only only is measuring one factor, or one facet of bitterness. And now we're now we got this whole other thing in here with the the human loans, uh, and really the part that cracked me up was the fact that it was such a low threshold for whether or not it was increasing bitterness yeah. or decreasing bitterness. Yeah. The other the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was about twelve percent of the IBUs in a test come from uh, other hop compounds like non bitter polyphenols, but they still contribute to the uh, to the. IBUs that you measure. So uh, well, because because they rate, they get absorbed at that particular nanometer length in the usual IBU test. Yeah, right, right. So and uh, and HPLC testing uh, can kind of separate all these uh, all these things out. Uh, that that's not what we did in our uh, in our test. Uh, that, so that's that's because that's other, expensive. Yeah, that's right. As a matter of fact, I asked Dana about it, and she said, "No, I'd have to like raise my prices from thirty-five bucks a test to about a hundred and fifty. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I guess we'll skip that then. Uh, another interesting variable, though, uh, was that the perceived bitterness levels that the uh, hoppy aroma can have on a person's uh, perception of bitterness. Uh, you know, so even even the aroma can uh, increase your perception of bitterness. And uh, I saw somebody uh, in discussing this article say that uh, one of his friends once took a whiff of uh, a bag of hops that he had and said, that smells bitter. Now, you know, all of us trained BJCP judges will say, geez, you know, bitterness is, uh, is, is a mouthfeel, it's a taste, it's a perception that doesn't come through your nose, but we'd all be wrong because apparently it does. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, to me, like I said, this was fascinating. This is a whole other thing that I think that we need to play around with because it really does start to twist around what we kind of think about and really does get back to that idea of the IBU is a lie and there's a lot more going on in terms of our perception than just the easy to calculate number. Um, this also yeah, I think... I, th I think that the more we look at uh, at IBUs and the perception of bitterness in beer, the more interesting things we discover that uh, bear looking into. Yeah, and this also makes me wonder. Yeah, you know, so this is plenty the younger season, 
You know, Plenty of the Younger is being released, and there will soon be mayhem all across the country in the various parts where you can get it, aka pretty much just California. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I've, I've, it's a good beer, but one of the things that's always killed me about it, and I never quite understood it, is for a beer that is that incredibly hoppy and that incredibly alcoholic, you know, there's always been sort of a, a decreased perception in my mind of hop character, hop flavor, hop aroma in comparison to, say, Plenty of the Elder, you know, which is much lower in alcohol and, you know, a slightly different hopping regime. So I'm also wondering if there isn't like an alcohol side effect going on here. You know, if there's, if that's kind of playing with it and it turns out that this is all, you know, time is a flat circle. Everything's interconnected. The force flows through you and the IBUs do too. <laughs> Sounds like something I should be saying. <laughs> oh, if only people knew how much of a hippie I am. <laughs> yeah, right. A short-haired, non-bearded, skinny hippie. I don't know, man. It happens. Don't don't be so close-minded, man. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, okay. I'll I'll, I'll give you your hippie badge. <laughs> so uh, we're gonna get out of the library here and head over to the lab to continue the IBU discussion with some of the Igors who brewed the beers for our experiment. We're going to talk to them about their brewing methods and uh, see how maybe that might have affected the results that they got. So stick around. We'll be right back. Y-Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters, Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham, to bring you the Y-Yeast private collection strains for 2017. We're kicking off the year with some of our favorite British-style strains in honor of the Session Beer Project founded by Lou Bryson and Session Beer Day on April 7th in order to popularize and support the brewing and enjoyment of Session Beers. Beers that are 4.5% alcohol or less and crafted for easy drinking without compromising flavor. Look for Y-Yeast's 1026 British Cask Ale, 1768 English Special Bitter, and 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2, available January through March. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Welcome back to the lab. On our last episode, we revealed the results of our IBU experiment. And just as a reminder, what we did was uh, we got a bunch of hops from Nico Lukov, who analyzed the hops for us so that we knew exactly what sort of alpha acids and other oils that we were having going into this experiment. Uh, Nico had sent those out to a bunch of our Igors, and we gave the Igors three standard recipes to brew, an American Pale Ale, an IPA, and a double IPA. And all of the Igors brewed those, shipped the beers to Denny, and then Denny took them over to Oregon Brew Lab, uh, run by our friend Dana Garvis, who then analyzed the beers so we could actually see, okay, what did we actually get in the beer in terms of IBUs? So after that last episode, we had a lot of people chime in and say, hey, well, what about these factors and these factors? You know, what would account for the spread that we were seeing? Did different people have different chilling regimes? Did different people have different boil velocities? So 
what we decided to do was we put a call out there to the Igors who did the experiment, and we said, who wants to come talk to us and tell us exactly what you did? So what we have now lined up for you is we're about to jump on the phones, and we are going to talk to a handful of our Igors and have them walk you through exactly what they did, what they think might have affected their IBU levels, and what changes they might possibly make to their brewing processes thanks to this whole experiment. Okay, we are back, and we have Jeremy Wickham on the phone. How are you today, Jeremy? Yeah, how you guys doing? Great, man. So, uh, where are you at? I am in Starkville, Mississippi. I detected something southern about you there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very southern. <laughs> Grew up 30 miles away from here. Came to college at Mississippi State and never left. Wow. Interesting, man. Yep. So, uh, tell us about your brew day with this beer. Everything goes smoothly? Now, which one? Uh, I did, too. I did the Pillow and the IPA. Tell us about both of them. Okay. So, yeah, they were both pretty smooth. Um, I didn't really have any issues. So, with the Pillow, um, the only difference between the Pillow and the IPA is where I got my water. And my water source for the Pillow is there is a spring uh, about 20 miles south of where I live, and um, I collected all my water there. So with the IPA, I did uh, distilled water, and then I added minerals to that. Have you, so, ever, have you ever by any chance had that spring water analyzed to see what it's it's like? Me personally, I haven't, and I've been trying to get a contact at the university I work at. To apparently they they analyze it uh-huh. uh, every month, and the national the maybe it's the Mississippi Forest Commission they analyze it once a month. So I haven't been able to find a contact for it, but it's it's pretty pure and it's clean, tastes great. This is I, I go and get it, and I fill up all my drinking water vessels with it. So, I mean, it's it's very good. I just don't know the mineral content of the water yet. Right. So, uh, it's made some pretty good beers. Tell us tell us about your uh, brewing system. Uh, what's your kettle like? Okay, I have a 20-gallon Blickman brew kettle, and my mash ton is just a round um, Home Depot cooler mm-hmm. with a uh, mesh screen on the bottom. And then I have another 10-gallon Home Depot cooler with, uh, it's just, I use the hot liquor tank. Right. And so, how, how do you do your chilling? I have a immersion chiller, which is way too small for the pot I have, because <laughs> it was my very first one, and I haven't, I've been too cheap to buy a new one. Right. So, um, right now, I chill with, with a, an immersion chiller, and then I've also added a pump recently, this past year, I added a pump, and I recirculate. Cool. And Whirlpool uh, now. Right. That always helps, doesn't it? And, mm, sure does. and like, how long does it usually take for you to chill a batch? Um, depends. So I'm in Mississippi. In the summer, it can take mm-hmm. anywhere from an hour, hour and a half. Mm-hmm. In the winter, I can chill a batch in probably 30 minutes. So we've had pretty balmy weather the past few months. So I brewed this beer, the Pale Ale in September and the IPA in October. And I would imagine they were both, the days were in the 90s. So I would have, I think it took me probably in the 45 minutes to an hour range before I chilled to a a temperature that I could put in a carboy. Because with my groundwater temp, in the summer, I can't, it's it's hard-pressed for me to get a beer under 80 degrees. Wow. Mm -hmm. Without uh, without doing the pre-chiller and all that, I'm I'm in the process of trying to do that. But um, what I do is I, chill as much as I can until it pretty much flatlines, and then I throw it in the carboy, put it in my chest freezer, and the next morning I pitch. Right. 
Right. So basically then uh, your hops are staying in there longer than other people's might because it takes you a while to chill. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of interesting because, you know, part of the reason why we're talking with you first is you are pretty much our dead on normal example uh, of the Igors that we're talking to today. Because when we right. looked at the two beers that you submitted, uh, and thank you again for submitting your beers, we had the APA was measured out at 35 IBUs uh, when we ran it through the through the science process. And that was against a 32 IBU predicted for the recipe. Right. So you're like right in there. And then Dana actually uh, did her, her perception analysis where she did her sensory uh, version and she uh, clocked you in at 36 IBUs. So right on, on top of what she measured. So I mean, that's pretty much about as close in as I think you can get for using a formula not designed for pellets and for unknown equipment. And then on your IPA, uh, the IPA was supposed to be calculated out at 58 IBUs and you came in at a measure of 60 IBUs. So again, you were dead on, which is yeah. interesting that it takes you that uh, that it takes you that long to chill. Just think how far off you'd be if it didn't. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I wonder how how my uh, beers would turn out. Yeah, I know, man. It, that's that's very interesting, and it uh, it just goes back to what Glenn Tinseth was saying when we uh, talked to him about how. Uh, the the chilling method makes a huge huge difference in the amount of bitterness that you get uh and it you know it it's starting to look like unless you do everything exactly the way glenn did when he wrote these theories that you'll never get the right answer exactly yeah well and i think glenn's been quoted in the past as saying that his ibu formula is absolutely perfect for his equipment at the time that he was brewing so um now i have to ask with Having done this experiment now and having seen what you got back in terms of measurement, do you think this affects how you're going to look at recipe formulation in the future or what you're going to be looking for in terms of your bitterness? Like if you do step up your chilling, are you going to have to, do you feel like you're going to be compelled to change, you know, what you do? No, I probably won't change because I like what I'm producing. So if I do get a new chiller um, and my uh, efficiency on chilling is increased, and I see a, a difference, then I'll start to to um, adjust my... Yeah, I know. You'll, you'll, right, you'll right, adjust right. the recipes to compensate for the new chilling, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know what? And again, Glenn kept stressing, numbers don't matter. Your satisfaction with your beer is what matters. So that really exactly. seems to be the approach that you're taking. And uh, mm-hmm. that's the way it ought to be, so... Okay, Drew, any uh, other questions for Jeremy today? No, I have no other questions, but uh, I'm glad that you uh, helped us out here with the experiment. Uh, any Anything else that you that you took away from this? Um, I did take a first place in a competition with a pillow. <laughs> right on, hey! buddy. That, sure that's did. I, yeah, I dry yes. hopped. Um, I split my batches. I dry hopped uh, the one I didn't send you guys, and mm-hmm. I, I, won, I took first place in a local competition down in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. What? And it, what did you dry hop with? I think the same. Uh, I dry hopped it with Columbus Centennial Cascade. Right. There we go. Oh, I think yeah. I did an ounce apiece. Super, super classic American pale ale and IPA recipe formulation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Okay, Jeremy. Well, man, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to be with us today, and especially for all the hassle of brewing those beers and packing them up and sending them up here, man. Uh, I know what uh, what a chore that is because I just did it the other day. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I do appreciate it, and I'm glad to uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. Well, thanks, man. So I enjoy the podcast. Well, you know what? And we couldn't do it without you and the rest of the Igors. That's what really makes all the difference. So uh, hopefully you'll be in on some of the other experiments we got coming up. I plan on it. All right, man. Thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye. We have Ben Mighton on the phone now. Hi there, Ben. How you doing today? I'm wonderful, thank you. So where are you at, man? I'm up in uh, Tacoma, Washington. Oh. Not too far away from you guys, I think. Well, not too far away from me. Drew is in uh, Poseidna, so he's a little bit farther away. Uh, only about 14 hours away. Come on. Or, no, yeah. actually, sorry. Take it back. <laughs> as, as the crow walks, right? Exactly. There you go. So, uh, Ben, uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, your brew day for this beer. How'd it go? You know, all things considered, it was a pretty smooth brew day. Uh, you know, I'd be nervous about missing numbers and all that, but uh, things went off pretty much without a hitch. So you hit, um, you hit your I original run- gravity and everything? I hit the original gravity right on. I was worried about it going into the boil. It looked like a little low on the refractometer, but measured out right on the hydrometer and confirmed at the end of the batch. So I was... Looks like 1084 for original gravity on it. Great. Right, and for the record, Ben did the uh, the double IPA uh, in this particular run. Right, right. Yeah. So, Ben, sure. tell, tell us a little bit about your brewing system. What's your, your kettle and burner and chilling procedure like? Yeah, so I'm using a converted keg as a kettle uh, with the top cut out, and I'm doing brew in a bag. So I've got uh, a bag from the brew bag. Dot com, I think is what they were, mm-hmm. and um, I use electric heat on the keg, so a 5,500 watt element, the straight foldback style, not the wavy looking one. Right, right. And then I've got a little basic controller that um, you know, does okay, uh, but I don't usually put any heat to it during the mash. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was heat to strike. Uh, I got pretty close. I think I was down by about, looks like maybe a degree yeah. at... Uh, dough in, which felt pretty good. Yeah. I usually add the grain to the bag while it's already in the water, sort of pour in and stir while I go mm-hmm. for what it's worth. Um, mash with a couple of stirs. Looks like 30 and 60. I did a stir and took a measurement um, and pulled the bag and added the sugar when I got the bag out mm-hmm. and started heating up. Right. And I usually do 100% heat until I'm boiling and then dial back to 60 or 65. Right. Do you, um, uh, do you bag and, uh, your hops by any chance? You know, I do not. Okay. I've considered it from time to time, uh, mostly when I've had a big mess or plugged a pump, <laughs> but I usually just throw everything in there loose and cross my fingers. Right. Okay. This one, I didn't have any problems with. And, uh, and pretty bitter do, beer, but... What do you do for chilling, Ben? So I use an immersion chiller. It's a half-inch copper by 50 feet. Okay. Um, and it, it went in about 15 minutes from the end of the boil, um, and then chilled down to 160. To it looks like my notes say it took me a minute 40 seconds to get to 160. Wow, that's great! After the boil, that's really. Fun. We had cold uh, had cold water that, <laughs> that day, I guess. 
I looked well, see, like I overshot on my whirlpool temp a little bit. I ended up at one forty-five by the time things settled out. Well, I was going to say, so that, I mean, that rapid chilling is kind of an interesting little variable because, so looking at the double IPA uh, recipe, when we calculated it out, it was calculated to be 76 IBUs. Now, of course, we also knew that going going on the higher end of the scale was going to lead probably to more wobble just because of how those curves work. So it was calculated to be uh, 76 IBUs. And what we actually had measured by Dana was uh, 45 and yeah. uh, her 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 perception when she did her sensory analysis, she, she pitted at fifty two IBUs. So uh, okay, w- uh, so interestingly low. And and part of the question then would be, well, you said you took a minute and a half to get down to one sixty. Uh, yeah, yeah, a minute and a half so, to one sixty, and then one forty five when I started the clock on the whirlpool. So now then that makes me wonder if if the formula here doesn't kind of assume or the curve at least assume like a certain path of chilling and a certain amount of time above, you know, the, that one seventy mark that a lot of people talk about. Because well, I mean, let's, let's face it. Glenn never tested what kind of IBU contributions uh, whirlpool hops make. So uh, it's, it's really hard to say, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, ben, I'll tell you, we just talked to, uh, to Jeremy Wickham who lives in Mississippi and it takes him like up to an hour and a half to chill because of the water temperature there. Um, oh, wow. But his IBU numbers came in much higher than yours and uh, pretty much in line with what were predicted. So this is starting to look like it's going back to Glenn's idea that uh, – how long it takes you to chill can have a real, real effect on the amount of IBUs you get. It makes sense. It makes sense commercially too, to me anyway. Yeah. That a lower rate might correlate better. Yeah. That's a, boy, that's... From my recipe, it didn't look like the contribution of the Whirlpool hops, even though there was by mass quite a bit of it, didn't look like it contribute that much by IBU. Yeah. Well, or eight IBUs worth. Right. But, you know, uh, I think that uh, at this point, everybody is kind of, guessing at the IBU contribution of whirlpool <laughs> hops. And obviously yeah. obviously that's going to be different depending on how long it takes you to chill. I mean, we may be looking at a, a need for a new hop formula that takes length of chilling time into account. It could be. So, Drew, any, uh, no. any uh, world-shaking insights from you? World-shaking insights? Uh, not that I'm going to share on this podcast because, well, <laughs> I like the world to be the way it is. But, I mean... So yeah, I mean, because this was a twenty-minute steep of cascade that you had, so that's kind of eh, kind of right. interesting. Yeah, I totally think the formula assumes a certain sort of chilling profile because I don't think a lot of brewers were obsessively trying to push down as cold as we do these days, uh, or at least as fast. Uh, so now here's the other question. So given that you you measured in at I think it was uh, forty yeah forty five IBUs when you're yeah, tasting the beer when you're looking at this beer. How do, how do you perceive the bitterness in comparison to the other beers that you've done on your own? Uh, you know, it was uh, surprisingly smooth or balanced, I guess. Everybody that tasted it was sort of caught off guard that it was a double IPA. And I think a lot of that came from well, a lack of real sharp or aggressive bitterness in it. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of the same. I didn't pick up as aggressive bitterness as I'd get from make, maybe making the, um, like the Pliny the Elder, recipe that floats around out there. 
I feel like mm-hmm. that's got much more assertive hop character, and this one was a lot more muted. It certainly wasn't unbalanced, and from the ABV, I would have expected it to need 60 or 70 IBU to feel as balanced as it was. But again, I kind of shook up on what an IBU actually means in my system now. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, man, we all are, you know? Um I can tell you that uh, that Oakshire, the brewery that I do some work with here, uh, had uh, Dana come in and uh, take samples of their boil every 10 minutes and develop their own curve for hop utilization. Uh, and I'm starting to go, well, damn, maybe that's what we need to do, too, is every home brewer needs to send off, you know, like six or eight samples from a typical boil and get their own curve measured. I, I wouldn't doubt there it. In fact, go. I'm inspired to send some of my other beers over to her to have her take a look at them. Yeah, right. Uh, that that would be really interesting. I mean, you brew up that Pliny clone that uh, you think is so hoppy and then send her one to see what it really comes out to be. Sure. Well, I have a, well, I have hey, a so, northern uh, brewer yeah. patch, too. Yeah. yeah. Right, well, I was going to say, uh, well, now let me ask. Now that you've seen these numbers uh, for your particular beer, do you think there's anything that you're thinking of changing about how you brew or are you still just going to plug away the way that you've been brewing? I had a long conversation with some buddies that I brew with about whether seeing the number is going to change how I make the beer or whether I'm just going to drink the beer and not drink the numbers. It, to be honest, I probably won't change recipes that I think turn out well from this. Um, I may look, you know, I've got a couple of recipes that I've tried and feel like they didn't come out quite right. And the ones that came out a little too malty or not hoppy enough, yeah, I may take this and say, well, I won't be scared of going up to a calculated IBU of 90 or 100 or 150 or whatever the number comes out to, knowing that the utilization might not be as high. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like you're, what, roughly like 25 30% low, so you could experiment with just, say, adding 30% more hops, too, and see what that does. Yeah, I tell you, the cheapskate in me wants to experiment with a 30% more vigorous boil or something <laughs> easy like that, and I don't have to buy any more hops. Or, or a, a throttle, down, throttle down the water when you're chilling so that it takes longer. Right, right. I mean, I could whirlpool without turning on the chiller. Traditionally, I'll turn on the chiller, run it down to 170, 165, somewhere around there, cut off the water. I mean, I could just not do that, just whirlpool hot. Yeah, right, right. I mean... Who who knows, man? It, it looks like yeah, there's stuff to play around with there, but uh, this this experiment uh, really has shown us that uh, there's a lot of things that we think that we know that we don't know that really deserve some more uh, looking into. Uh, even at a 45 or 50 IBU beer, it still disappeared out of the kegerator pretty quick. So <laughs> you know, I might make the beer again just for scientific purposes, you know. Yeah, right. Of course of course. Yeah, I understand that, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, look, is science is repetition and note taking. So you've got the go. note taking, you gotta get the repetition. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, try it again, see if it tastes the same. So All right, Ben. Well thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it and we really appreciate you being an Igor and brewing these beers and going through the hassle of packing them up and shipping them up here to me. Well, I appreciate you guys putting together a program like this. You're doing great work, and I hope it keeps uh, keeps on for a couple months. Well, yeah, believe me, it'll be at least a couple more months. <laughs> there we go. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, guys. It was great talking to you. You too, man. Talk to you later. And on the line now, we have Kevin Cole. Uh, Kevin, where, uh, where are you from? I'm from Michigan. 
All right, from Michigan. And Kevin uh, actually was our, our fancy label man. Gave us some really great uh, labels on the bottles. So, um, and you uh, submitted three different beers. Uh, you submitted the all three of the, the ones that we were doing in this experiment, the American Pale Ale, the IPA, and the Double IPA. And just uh, to start with, we'll take a look at the results, and then we'll get into what your brew day is like and see, you know, huh, how does that impact what we what we saw? So... On the American Pale Ale, which was supposed to uh, was calculated out to thirty two IBUs, uh, Dana had actually measured twenty IBUs in your sample, and when she did her perceptual analysis, came up with twenty seven IBUs. When uh, the IPA was calculated out to fifty eight IBUs, and the samples were measured at thirty seven IBUs with a perceptual measurement of forty, and then finally the double IPA, which was calculated to seventy six, came out to a measure of fifty five with a perception of 50. So it was the first time the perception was actually lower. Um, so all in all, it looks like each of the samples that were submitted, they actually ended up being lower than what the predicted uh, IBUs were. So now that's kind of interesting. You're very consistent, which is awesome because you can adjust for that. But walk us through what your brew day is like. Like how big batches are you making? You know, what's your system like? And what do you remember about these particular brew days? With the first one with the pale ale, like my system, I'm brewing indoors on a like what can do about a ten gallon batch of a fairly high gravity beers brew in a bag. But so it's a it's a twenty gallon kettle though. Um, which means that when I'm doing five gallon batches like these are, the the boil is very shallow and it's an electric induction boil, so it's also most of the heat is very concentrated at the center of the pot. So while it is boiling, um, to do the brews indoors in my basement without having to cut holes in my wall and add a whole bunch of um, fans and everything, I had been experimenting with just kind of recirculating at like 207, 208 degrees, kind of like what I read as the Matic was doing, where it wasn't really boiling so much as just getting really, really close to boiling and still pasteurizing and still getting hops out of it. And so that's what I have been doing, and that's what I did with all of these batches. And I guess in my experience from judging score sheets before this, even before I was, when I was regularly boiling on the system, I was getting less utilization because I would get score sheets back that says, you know, hot characters lower or I enter a white IPA in a competition and someone tells me, well, it's not quite a white IPA, but it's a very good hoppy wit beer. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> This, this is the kind of feedback that I've gotten in the past. And, and then when I've done like recipes where it's like, like a recipe out of a book or a recipe that for, is for cloning, if I follow the math perfectly, it, it never seemed quite right. Like it, it just didn't taste quite the way it was. And in fact, my hoppy Whitbeer was a published clone from the brewery of a white IPA. So. Well, and so it's interesting because yeah, you, uh, I mean, just looking at each of these results, I mean, you're running somewhere at about, you know, 60 to 70% of the predicted IBU results. So are the, the calculations yeah. and, and are, are you still, are you still running at this sort of not quite a boil level or. Yeah, I think I'd probably be running at that not quite a boil level forever at this point. Cause it, it, it produces beer that, that tastes fine to me. Um, I'm just gonna, what I've done now is I've gone to Beersmith and told it that, there's a setting that I found in there that talks about for commercial systems where you're over 
hundred liters or something to change the hop utilization. And mm-hmm. even though I'm doing five gallons, I told it it's not a hundred percent anymore. It's 75. And that gets me pretty, when I did that, then at least the double IPA, the IBUs were really close to the right measure. And mm-hmm. so I figured going forward, I'm just going to build clone recipes by looking at the clone recipe. When they tell me it's 20 IBUs, figure out how to get 20 IBUs with my 75% utilization and go from there. So what do you do for chilling, Kevin? Uh, chilling, I have uh, a pretty large immersion chiller. So I have a 50-foot uh, coil of copper that's half-inch copper that goes in and Groundwater here in Michigan is pretty cold, even in the summer. So uh, when I start recirculating, uh, you can watch it count down like it's counting down to a shuttle liftoff on the temperature. It's going one per second until I get to about 70 degrees. So as soon as I put that in, there's not a lot of time that the hops are going to keep working. Right. So I'm 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 super jealous of all you people with actual cold groundwater. <laughs> yeah, man, mine's about. 45. I can I can use the immersion chiller to get to uh, 52 degrees right now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, meanwhile, my uh, my groundwater is still averaging somewhere in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> so so one thing that we're seeing, Kevin, is that the quicker people chill, the farther off they are from the IBU targets. So, I mean, and Glenn had, Glenn had postulated when we talked to him in the last episode that, uh, how quickly you chill makes a big difference in, uh, how close you are to the estimates. And in talking to people here today, what we have seen is that the people who take longer to chill, for instance, uh, we talked to Jeremy Wickham, who brews down in Mississippi, it can take him up to an hour and a half to chill. And his beers came on almost dead on on the IBU estimates. So none of these would have taken me more than 15 minutes. Yeah, right. And and that's kind of the same for me this time of year, too. Uh, so it's a, it, it, it's very interesting uh, and uh, kind of seems like that is going to have a major effect on, uh, on your IBUs. Drew, anything else here for uh, Kevin? Now that you have this, you've already talked that you've, you're making some adjustments to you know how you're brewing in terms of kind of making an assumption of different hop utilization you think there's anything else uh, having seen these results that you're going to change um see i don't i don't really think so because I, i'm afraid that I, like it looks like well what i, I could spend a, a lot more time chilling and, and that doesn't really appeal to me compared to throwing another quarter ounce of bittering hops right um and and my i also i'm not really inclined to go back to like a like a full rapid boil because then I have a lot of boil up and I have to deal with all of that ventilating into the air. And I don't, I don't really want to deal with that. I'm, I'm much happier brewing in the basement where I don't have to be in the cold. So, and I, and I'm really not in a situation where I really want to be, you know, slicing, dicing holes in the wall to get enough ventilation to get that steam out of there. Right. So since that's working and I'm not even sure based on the chilling thing that, that changing it back to like a more rapid boil would have, made a big difference in this at all. It sounds like my chillers was at fault, so leave it alone. Well, and very uh, very strong point to make here. It's not that the chillers at fault. It's just that the chillers, the chiller impacts the calculations. No, I, th- I mean, I think what you're doing is probably the right thing. I mean, we talk about this all the time with commercial breweries or with other homebrewers. You know, you change up a piece of gear or you change some technique and you got a little bit of time when your recipes are kind of wobbling around a little bit as you dial in. And so, yeah, I think here with this, the more rapid chilling, 
you've already started to adjust for, you know, what you're actually perceiving. So again, the IBU number is a lie. Just change what you're doing to get to the right potential yeah. range for yourself. I think what I really like about it is, is I guess before actually seeing the numbers, like it's the beers that worked out best for me were always the ones that when you went into the, like kind of, you have that little style mirror in beer smith and it's showing the IBUs and I'm in the red or just about to the red. And those are the ones that, that seem to turn out better than the ones where I was in the middle of the range or even worse at the bottom. And this kind of, I guess, is, it's more of a confirmation of what was going on. But I guess mm-hmm. before that, I really wasn't too inclined when doing like like straight up clone recipes. I wasn't inclined to just go and blow off what their IBU number was and hop it heavier. But now I am. So, well, yeah. Now you I, have the, now you have out. the confidence and understanding of how your system works. Yeah, so exactly. that's good. All right, all right, Denny. Anything else? Nope, I think that's about it. Uh, thanks a bunch for your time today, man. We really appreciate uh, you talking to us and brewing the beers and packing them up and shipping them out to me. Well, thanks a lot, you guys, for testing them and getting us all set up. Well, uh, you know, I I hope that it was a valuable experience for you, and I hope that you'll uh, participate in some of the experiments we got coming up in the future. All right, Kevin, thanks again for talking to us. Have a great rest of the day. You too. All right, bye-bye. Uh, this time we have Mike O'Toole. Mike, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. <laughs> All right. Um, Mike, where are you calling us in from? Uh, I'm from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And now, uh, just for the record, uh, I, we were talking earlier that we've we've actually met before. We've met at HomebrewCon, uh, and you were actually on the podcast earlier. Yeah, I talked about, uh, you know, I think it was an Imperial Red that I made, Um you, you all tasted it, and I just talked about my brew process right. and how we got and, started. And then uh, which club were you a part of? Uh, the Annapolis Homebrew Club. That's right. All right. So for this particular uh, for this particular experiment, uh, Mike actually uh, jumped up and volunteered and did a two brew sessions. You did the American Pale Ale, and you did the double IPA. And what we thought was interesting, part of the reason why we wanted to have you on to talk, was that you kind of pulled off the perfect Brewers 710 split here, uh, where a lot of our brewers have been going uh, low or just about on par or a little bit above the numbers. You actually managed to split the difference and go low on one and high on the other. So congratulations on that one. That's, that's uh, real that's challenge, man. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad. I mean, I'm con- I can be consistently inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> that's important in right. life. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, when people think I'm going to zig or zag, I've got that skill. Um, all right. And so just to just to walk through the two brew sessions real quick, or the two brews real quick, uh, on the APA that was calculated out at 32 IBUs, you actually measured in 43 IBUs. And then on the double IPA, which was calculated out to 76 IBUs, you came in at 61. So up and down, up and down. Uh, so why don't we dig in, uh, talk a little bit about your brew sessions, uh, what you're brewing on, and these particular uh, brew batches uh, as they went for you, and see what we can figure from those numbers. Yeah, so um, this was the second and third batch that I did on a grandfather. Um, I typically brew on a 15-gallon, three-tier setup. Uh, so these brew days ended up being somewhat different for me because not having really a lot of experience on this equipment um, brought a few challenges as I went, but I tried to replicate most of my traditional process within the confines of the grandfather. Uh, and I did a pretty good job. I think it, 
uh, replicating that where the systems could do that. I mean, there are things like sparging and uh, whatnot that, that couldn't be the same. And then just the length of time that it takes to brew on that system um, was a whole lot longer than my typical brew day. So uh, I'll just walk you through um, the pale ale. Um, I, I, the mashing was pretty the, was pretty simple, um, you know, 60-minute bat um, mash. I will tell you that I did scale these recipes up to 7-gallon pre-boil so that I was aiming for six and change of finishing um, of, of, of in the fermenter beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think going for numbers in the beer smith just kind of taking the percentages that you that you have giving your uh, hops and putting them in, into the percentage the same percentages so I could calculate and get the same off of you. So um, with that being said, I mean I just followed the same typical recipe. You know, my my grain bill I scaled up. Um, just to get to the, you know, the, you know, the seven gallon premium that I had in the grandfather. Um, so that was about 85% pale ale, uh, about 10% Munich 10, uh, 5% crystal 60. And then, um, my hops were bumped up just slightly from where you were at. And that was just, uh, that was at 0.6 ounces of each. Um, the Columbus Centennial and Cascade, and that ended up getting me in the, in the same calculation. Of, well, what was the IBU supposed to be? 30, 32. Uh, yeah, 30, yeah, thirty-two for the uh, American Pale Ale. Okay, so I had thirty-six here, so I, um, that that could be part of um, a bump, but I came in at what forty-three. Yep. Okay. So you were about you were thirty percent high or so on that one. Although I, w- I don't know if I made a change to the, uh, you know, I don't I don't know if I made change to the alpha assets that were in these calculations. I have I don't have the software in front of me, so um, you know it usually has the stock uh, right. alphas in there, so they they probably weren't adjusted according to uh, what the Nico Brewhouse was. At the same time, if you scaled up based on weight, you know, we had already recalculated the recipes to deal with the the IBUs, so or the oh, yeah. the known alpha acids. So as long as you were scaling by that number, I think you you would have been on target. Right. Yeah. So so let's talk chilling. Did you use the uh, Grainfather Counterflow chiller? I did. So and this is typically what I do with hoppy beers anyway. Is I'll like right at knockout, all or usually two minutes before knockout, I'll start circulating through. That way, um, I'm sanitizing the equipment at boil temperature, mm-hmm. and then letting it. Um, and then I usually just let it circulate for thirty minutes, and then I let it freeze. And then um, at the thirty minute mark, that's when I'm turning the water on. And then I'm starting to pump it into the fermenter and um, throttling throttling the flow back accordingly, so that I I'm trying to get at least you know hit a seventy degree temp or lower heading into the into the fermenter. Right. And it was about fifteen minutes to transfer from there. 
Do you uh, bag your hops when you're using the grain, Father? No. As a matter of fact, um, and I learned kind of a lesson with that, and we can talk more about it with the with the dipper, but uh, the pale ale I didn't have any problems with, um, kind of just throwing them in freestyle. I I don't typically bag or spider use a, a spider, hop spider. I have in the past. I just kind of find it. One, the hop spider gets usually gets so logged that pulling that stuff out can be messy. And, you know, it's just a step I, I just like to just chunk them in. And I thought, you know, does this, is that an effect on, on, the, on the hop utilization? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've watched the, I've followed the philosopher uh, experiments on some of that stuff and heard other people. And there's, you know, it's like, it's like everything else. Everybody's got an opinion on it. So, <laughs> Yeah, right. How dare you well, have an I mean, opinion? I I found with the grandfather, at least for me, that I absolutely have to bag my hops, uh, or else the the pump just gets hopelessly clogged. Uh, well, it was uh, it was a struggle. Yeah, and apparently, if you whirlpool, that that works, but I'm whirlpool impaired, so it doesn't work for me. But I was, <laughs> you know, I was just wondering um, if you had bagged the hops because that could make a difference, although. Again, on the IPA, you were high, so it wouldn't make a difference in that direction. So I'm yeah. baffled. I'm baffled. Drew, you got any any guesses? No, as to I mean, there's always possibility there was a scaling error, you know, and going up. But I mean, again, the math on that's super easy, and that wouldn't explain what happens with the next one. So why don't we why don't we dig into the into the double IPA? Okay, so I got a lot of problems with this with this particular. <laughs> um, it, it started out great when I was, I just, I got up, I like to get up early in the morning to kind of get this started and realizing after two brews, how long it takes to just get up to mash temperature. Even I just went downstairs at like five in the morning, turned the thing on, went about my morning of just kind of getting ready and, you know, came back an hour later and I was at strike temperature. Um, and I'm like, yeah, this is going to be great. And then I mashed in, and when I mashed in, I realized, wow, I've maxed out the grain bill here and more because uh, I just kind of, I didn't think twice about it. I just started dumping the crushed grain in, and next thing you know, I was out of space. So I did the quick, what do I do? (laughs) And um, I pulled the basket up. And I turned on the pump, and I drained out some of the water. So I had, I had started the dough in, uh, but basically maybe for, I don't know, it was, only, it was maybe two minutes. So not like I lost a lot of conversion there. But I got some, I got some uh, space back, but it meant for a thicker mash. Um, so I got through the mash. And I thought, okay, well, I've recovered. This is fine. And when I went to go sparge, the one real tricky thing about the grandfather is you can't see what your kettle volume is while you're sparging. Yeah, that's it's, right. It's really, really tricky. Um, so I tried to peer into there. I'm using a flashlight. I'm, I, you know, you start taking the, you know, the grain bed 
or you start pulling that big canister out and completely, you're going to have wart all over the floor. So, um, and I was doing this in my kitchen, by the way. <laughs> so that's why I don't use the grandfather in my kitchen, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not as it's not as terribly messy, but you know, it's, if, if you, you know, know it's terribly messy. <laughs> so anyway, um, that went, you know. So then I recovered from that, but I realized that I over I oversparked by about a gallon, and so I, you know, that was a kind of an eyeball estimate. But, uh, so what I did was I said, well, let me see if I can evaporate some of this off to kind of recuperate from this. So I aimed for a 90 minute boil and, uh, didn't start adding the hops until 60. Okay. So, um, I, looking at my notes here, I managed to get down only Let's see, a, a, oh, a quarter of a gallon in 30 minutes. Yeah. Right. Uh, was it about how much it was available to evaporate? So I said, well, I'm not going to do this all day. So wherever I'm at at 60 minutes, that's where I'm at. Right. And so I missed the mark on my, on my, um, my original gravity. Uh, I, I came in at, 1076 is where I came in at. So I said, okay, well, if I can manage to brew this again, I'll do it. Otherwise, it's just going to have to suffice. Yeah, right. So, Man, I, it's, it is really hard to say what might have happened there that would make your IBUs come out uh, come out low. Uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, though, uh, you were a lot closer than a lot of other people. <laughs> I kind of, I looked at the numbers on my phone and I kind of, I, you know, I, I didn't get to compare them all side by side. Were people generally low? Uh, it was, it was all over the place. Uh, uh, it could be as much as 30% low or high and it just depends. Uh, there were some well, people who were real low. Yeah. And it gets worse as, as the gravity goes up. So, I mean, being uh, being low on the double IPA is not surprising at all. Uh, we kind of predicted that a lot of people would be because as you start to get out to the more extreme gravities, since one of the primary influences in Glenn's curve is gravity, uh, you're going to see kind of more wobbly results. So, yeah, I mean, we saw some people, I think, that were... <laughs> what do we have? We had one that was, oh yeah, like uh, below 60% of the perceived or yeah. the calculated um, bitterness. You were at like 81%. So that's not too bad given that we're out there at the extreme ranges of the curve. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I right. thought for sure that I'd been on completely low on all aspects because of the boil bigger of the grandfather. But mm-hmm. hey, you know, now I've got both sides to say that. Yeah, and according to what Glenn had, has said, uh, I don't think that boil vigor is going to matter as much with pellets as it would with whole hops. Right. Okay. Yeah, I heard that. Well, I heard the interview. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that that was that calculation was completely based on whole hops was interesting. <laughs> kind of blew us away. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I'm, I'm I'm certain somewhere in the back of my mind I knew that, and of course there's a reason why everybody talks about oh well you know there are these 
you know, factors you put into place for pellets and whatnot. But I don't know if anybody's ever actually done the math on the on those factors. So right. well, there you go. All right. Well, hey, uh, Mike, real quick. Uh, now that you've seen these numbers and uh, now that you've been playing around with the grandfather, uh, do you think there's anything that's going to change about how you brew now that you've seen this? Or, I mean, in your particular case, you got enough of a, a sort of a wibbly wobbly picture that I wonder what you can do with it. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't go, I, I'm going to make changes out of how it tastes more than I am going to do about, you know, what the, what the actual IBUs came out as. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I can't measure that with my tongue. I feel like if I made a beer that I'm going to drink, I'm going to want to drink again, that's, and that's, that's what I'll try to adjust, or what I'll adjust or keep the same. Um, I wasn't too particularly fond of my results of either of these beers. So, um, I, I probably tweak it a little bit. Um, you know, but I don't know if it'd be a hop thing. I think it'd probably be, you know, a little less crystal and, uh, actually add the dry hops, mm-hmm. uh, to get a little bit more of the hop flavor out of it. Hey, uh, Mike, I just want to thank you for uh, for taking the time to join us today, and uh, for, especially for taking the time to brew those beers and pack them up and ship them off to me, man. I, I know what a pain that can be. Oh, anytime. It was a fun experiment. Maybe we should do it with the regular formula next. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike. Thanks, thanks again, man, and have a great rest of your day. Hey, you guys do the same. It was great chatting with you. All right, you too, man. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, our final Igor with us today is Dave Matson. How you doing today, Dave? Doing great. How you doing? Uh, so far, so good. Except I'm working and not drinking. <laughs> uh, that makes two of us. <laughs> oh, I don't feel so bad then. So, uh, where are you located, Dave? Um, I'm located in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Is it cold up there? Uh, it, it gets that way sometimes. A little bit of snow here and there, but uh, it's been actually pretty uh, unseasonably uh, warm a winter uh, this year. Oh, interesting, interesting. Okay, so let's take a quick look at the results. You brewed all three beers, and i got to give you major props for that, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, Yeah, they're all, all in one day. All in one day? Oh, that's insane, buddy. <laughs> but thank you. We appreciate it. So uh, your APA came in at 29 IBUs out of a predicted 32. That is darn close. Your IPA came in at 43 out of a predicted 58. And then your double IPA came in at 44 out of 76. Right. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, tell us about the brew days or your brew day. Other than being hectic, did everything go smoothly? You know, uh, everything went uh, very smoothly. Um, you know, I uh, I have two kettles and two mash tons, and so I do actually three brews uh, pretty often. Um, you know, finding time to brew so. It actually, I use uh, Beersmith, and I've got Beersmith on two computers, and and really timers going, and I label all my all my uh, hops, and I label you know everything going in the boil, including the roll flock and yeast nutrients, and 
everything. So I, I was pretty sure that it, as, as the brew day went, uh, uh, the only um, potential, not the only, I had a near miss. Uh, my wife came out to ask me um, how the brew day was going. I said, well, I'm making an APA, IPA, and a double. And she said, well, what's the difference between them? And I started explaining the differences in the grain bill. And I said, and, and I had just finished the, I did the double second, and I had just finished that and put it in the fermenter. And I said, and the big difference in the double is got a you know, it's got uh, sugar in it. Or it would have sugar in it if the sugar <laughs> that's sitting on the counter was inside in the fermenter. So I, I uh, it came close. I had to, um, I, I, I uh, uh, boiled up the sugar, let it cool, and then dropped it in the fermenter afterwards. So I nearly, uh, we nearly missed on uh, that, on, on, on uh, the sugar-wise. But other than that, a uh, very uh, smooth day, um, you know, going through. So I really, you know, I, as I mentioned in some of the emails, I use a, um, uh, like, go through and I, I use a uh, muslin bag for the hops. Mm-hmm. And I started doing that, you know, for the last, you know, I've been brewing for about, uh, all grain for about a year and a half. And ever since I started doing all grain, I switched to doing that. And, uh, you know, I, you know, uh, used the all grain, uh, used the uh, muslin bag for all three of them and uh, didn't have any problems. Uh, hops were weighed out ahead of time. So are both of your systems the same? Yes, I have. I have uh, two uh, boil kettles. Kettles are are identical. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're identical in geometry. They're they're two different brands, an Amsil and a Megapot, but they're mm-hmm. they're essentially um, almost identical in geometry. And um, they're both ten gallon brew pots. Um, I used a um, you know I use the different mash tons. I have uh, two ten gallon uh, igloo type coolers, the brown coolers, as my mash tons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, but, you know, that, that doesn't really have anything to do with the hops, but... Right. Did you, you, know, I, did you hit all your numbers pre-boil and post-boil okay? You know, um, I'm going to look here in my notes. Um, my... All right, so the APA, uh, the session here, um, pre-boil came up Came up, uh, see, so predicted was one uh, ten forty seven. I came up at ten forty three on the IPA. Predicted was uh, ten fifty five. I came up a little short on that ten forty five, and uh, the last one predicted sixty two, and it came up to fifty five. I as I've been doing this, I routinely come on, you know, come under in my numbers and it's partly, I have to do some adjustments in the efficiency, right. um, in my, so, but I, I routinely come up under and I recently just tweaked the efficiency, just try to get a little closer on predicted, but nothing, no huge, uh, gaps. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and, and the other thing that's interesting too, is if anything, being low on gravity should have increased the IBUs, and that doesn't right. seem to be the case, does it? No, no, not at all. Hmm, hmm, very interesting. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk chilling. Did you chill all three batches the same way? Yes. So the way I chill is I, um, you know, I have the hot bag in, and so I want to. And I look at my notes here for a second. So. At flame out, what I did is I pulled the hot. So now here's where 
on all three cases, uh, right at flame out, I pull out the hot bag with the bittering and the, the boil additions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then, because um, they were 60 minutes, 10 minutes, I actually pull those out, and then I added the whirlpool hops uh, directly to the wort. Gave it a little spin, let the cover off for about 20 minutes, and then turned the, uh, I have an immersion chiller, mm-hmm. kind of typical immersion chiller type thing, and um, it, it, they all chill down, you know, uh, pretty, I'll say reasonably quick, maybe uh, 20 minutes uh, in that, so. Okay, 20 minutes isn't bad. Uh, so, so I get a whirlpool of 20 plus then the chill of 20. But again, I, the one thing I've, I've noted is, uh, and I think one of the other eaglers did the same thing, is you know, pulling out the hot bag because it gets in the way of the, the immersion chiller sometimes. It's like, all right, I just started always pulling the hot bag out and, and set that aside. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that you need to leave those hops in there while you're right. chilling. Uh, what I, and I'll tell you, I, I bag, uh, when I use whole hops, I, I always bag them, uh, pellets I don't worry about, uh, but whole hops I do. I lay a spoon across the, uh, top of my kettle and hang the bag from that. And when I put in the immersion chiller, I kind of like lift the bag up, put the chiller in and then put the bag back in while I'm chilling. Right. Uh, right. It's, and- it, it, it's messy and it's a pain, but for me, that's the way I learned to do it, you know? Right, right. And you know what? I, at some point when I started doing this, I just started always pulling the hops out. Now, I'll say I've, I've entered a lot of beers in different competitions. Of course, I give, I've made about 50, about 10 times less beer than you've made, but, you know, I've, I've made about 50 batches total in the last couple, you know, years that I've been doing this. And um, I've never been accused of making an overhop, overly hopped beer. And when I've sent things into competitions, they, almost always come back um, where the hops don't get a lot of the hops. So this is not, you know, for me to say, well, these came up light on, on the IBUs. Um, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't go against things that I've had experience with, with my system, the way I do things. Right. That's normal for you, huh? Yeah. It's a, and so it's making, you know, certainly after this, um, I've started thinking about a doing less, hot bagging because I don't I I don't have a plate chiller. I don't have any reason to worry as much. It's just a sure. thing I started doing and have never thought about it. Right. You know, and the other thing that I do when I bag my hops is I take into account the often cited uh, figure. I have no idea if it's right, but they they there's a, a claim that uh, bagging your hops reduces your utilization by ten percent. So right. when I bag my hops, I add ten percent more hops. Right, and and I just started poking around in the in the um, software just to see where I could. I, I'm sure it's in there somewhere, um, but you know where I could just have it calculate that for me, or ultimately on a something that doesn't have a real lot of hops in it, I could not worry about it as much and just yeah. uh, and just throw the hops in and call it good, um, but. But again, it was just one of those things where, you know, I, I looked at a technique of uh, using a hot bag and, uh, okay, well, I guess that's that'll work. Well, there are advantages to that, too. So, right. Um, you know, um, so based on all of this, are you going to change anything in the way you brew? Uh, yeah. Well, so a couple of things. Um, well, the most 
important thing. Probably I'm going to change um, how I, uh, you know, put the hops in. I'm going to spend a little more time, um, you know, I'll just drop, for the most part, drop hops in and um, and not worry so much about a hop bag unless um, I've got, unless I've got, a, you know, a whole bunch of, um, you know, over-the-top amount of hops going in. But, you know, the, the downside is there's a reason for that is because you're trying to get a lot of the hop characters. So, you know, I, I ultimately may just go back to throwing hops in. I think I started doing this when I had a smaller kettle and I didn't, you know, I was just trying to minimize the amount of the, the hop gunk oh, getting right. into the fermenter, right? And right. Uh, But it's a couple of times, for instance, I made a triple and I, and I didn't want to put the, I, I put a little bit of uh, orange peels and I didn't want to put that in the hop bag because I really wanted to get more of that flavor out of there. So I'm starting to just forget the hot bag for now. And I may have to revisit if I ever get a plate chiller, but for now it's uh, probably that's the biggest thing I'll do. Just go back to using the hops loose instead of putting them in bags, huh? Using the hops loose. You know, I've got a really, you know, I've got a pretty accurate scale, so I know I'm getting the right sure, right amount in. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, so that's probably yeah, the biggest it, it thing. It would be interesting for you to try it without a bag and see how it compares, you know. Uh, at the very least, uh, perception-wise, even if you don't get the unbagged beers analyzed, you can see how uh, how your perception stacks up against the beers where you bag the hops. Absolutely. And I did, I just was listening to a podcast, probably it might have been uh, uh, Beersmith, or, uh, but it had uh, 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 Marshall on there, and they had just, this was about six months ago, and, they, and I just happened to do, you know, catching up on this, but he had done the experiment of a hot bag versus no hot bag, and they really didn't see a lot of difference, but what I didn't know, because I haven't read the actual philosophy thing, was did he pull the hot bag out? Because that might be, uh, Danny, that might be actually sort of this in-between thing where leaving the hot bag in for the entire chilling. Yeah, it would, it, it, it's going to make some difference. I, I can't really say how much right. difference it's going to make, but it, I think right. it will make a difference. You know, and yep. I think it's just something you need to play with and do it multiple times and see what you think. Right. Well, it sounds like more experiments to do. And I, I tend to do a lot of split batches and, 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 uh, well, yeah, a lot with, of two, with two systems, I mean, here's a perfect chance, you know, split your work between two kettles, bag the hops yep. in one and not the other one and see what happens. That's exactly it. Right. I mean, so that's, that's kind of where I'm and is when I, you know, when I, uh, make that next, you know, hoppy type, you know, IPA type beer is to really, um, really maybe revisit these, these, uh, types of hops and the amounts that we use for this particular experiment and really, uh, see if I can pop it up a little bit. Yeah. Right. Okay, man. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And especially thank you for brewing three beers and packing them up and shipping them off to me. I, I know what a pain that is, and I really appreciate it. Well, it was uh, fun doing the experiments, and I'm looking forward to uh, to uh, doing a few more as one of the Igors, uh, Denny. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. Great, man. Well, we really appreciate having your input, Dave. Uh, have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that was pretty interesting, huh? Uh, wide, wide range of brewing styles there. 
Um, one thing that really struck me was that uh, everybody seems to take different amounts of time chilling, and that was one of the things that Glenn had really cited as being able to make a difference, huh? Yeah, and I said this in the phone calls, but I really do think that there is something there about the fact like the curve probably is adapted to Glenn's chilling regime. I mean, he, we talked about it in the, in the calls that he said in the past that the IBU calculations are absolutely perfect and spot on for his equipment at the time that he was brewing. And so now what we've got is different sorts of chilling regimes, different people taking different amount of times. Yeah, I can totally see that affecting the amount of IBUs that you get out of something. Yeah, and it's kind of like uh, like I was saying uh, in one of the, the conversations we had, it's almost at the point where if you really, really want to know, you have to take a sample every 10 minutes of your own brew and get that analyzed and make your own curve. But let's get real. Who's going to do that? Well, and don't forget, it's not just every 10 minutes on on a sample beer that you're brewing. It's every 10 minutes on a couple sample beers at a couple of different gravities. Because right. we do know that gravity does play play a little bit of a trick in here. And then, of course, we have the whole follow-up thing of, is it gravity or is it protein? Yeah, right. And especially uh, considering the uh, discussion about uh, pellets versus whole hops, it makes you wonder if, uh, if it was a protein effect and it was coating whole hops or – and if in that case, does it really have the same effect if you use pellets? I mean, who knows? The more questions we answer, the more questions pop up to be answered, right? And damn that science. Always making <laughs> us find new things to explore. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. So stick around. We'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. Okay, we are back, and uh, we're going to change the format of the end of the show here just a little bit this week. Uh, we're not going to be having a quick tip because we spent so much time talking to people, and uh, we're not going to be doing any Q&A this week because we have an all-Q&A show coming up in six weeks on episode 36, and so we're saving up your questions for that, and uh, we could even use more. So if you have a question that you would like to uh, have us answer on the Q&A show, episode 36, please send it to questions at experimentalbrew.com, 
Or you can call the new Experimental Brewing Hotline at 626-765-1AL and leave us a voicemail with your question, and uh, we'll play it on the air uh, when we get there. So, Drew, you have something other than beer for us this week. I know, don't I always? Uh, You'd almost think that, you know, I don't like beer or something. But no, uh, this one is actually really, really cool. It's another uh, podcast, and I never really thought to talk about it because in a lot of the podcast listening circles that I troll around in, people know this because it is a classic. It is considered to be one of the best podcasts out there that you could ever possibly listen to. And that is uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And Dan Carlin is a former radio host and uh, now turned full-time podcaster. uh, And he has a couple of podcasts. He's uh, somewhat politically different than I am. Uh, you know, with his common sense podcast, but his hardcore history podcast is absolutely amazing. It does you not know where Dan Carlin is from. No, Eugene, Oregon. That, that podcast comes out of a little garage in Eugene. Ah, there you go. So he's your neighbor. Well, kind of, uh, but hardcore history. I mean, like literally, I think he releases like six episodes a year. So, right. and if you guys ever think that Denny and I are going on way too long, uh, you really kind of need to get uh, get your hands around this show. Give you an example. He just dropped a brand new episode, fifty uh, ninth episode of his show called "Blitz: The Destroyer of Worlds," and it's a whole exploration of the early nuclear age when mankind really did seem to kind of be on the verge of uh, destroying ourselves in the blink of an eye. It's five hours and forty nine minutes long. <laughs> So you're using that as justification for us to go long, right? No, I'm just saying, if if you ever think that we're going long, trust me, it gets it can get a lot longer and wackier. Now, if you have a long commute like I do, that's perfect. But really, you should give this uh, podcast a try if you haven't, because this is one topic. This is the first time I, I think he's covered the nuclear age. But he just literally got done with a three-part series called King of Kings, exploring the Persian Empire. Uh, he had a... Six-part, seven-part uh, series uh, called Blueprint for Armageddon that was all about World War One. He did the same thing about the Vikings. I mean, he's he's done just amazing uh, shows. There are these kind of long-stretch, long-form historical explorations. And if you love history at all, you really should give it a try. He has a very unique delivery style, but he does a great job of giving you a lot of facts, but not in the most overly dry fashion. He is weaving a story, which is part of what you need in order to kind of make history, not just a recitation of, you know, dates and numbers and events. So by all means, if you are in the mood for some really great history and you got some time to listen to things, definitely go and look up uh, Dan Carlin's hardcore history series. Uh, If you join his site, you can actually get all the other episodes. Unlike us, he actually kind of rolls up, episodes so only the last couple ones are available but right now you can still get all the blueprint farm again series king for kings and now the new one the destroyer of worlds all right so if you got a bunch of time to kill that's the thing to do so uh we've wrapped up another show here we want to thank you all for listening to the experimental brewing podcast you can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can also download uh, episodes of The Brew Files while you're there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at 
EXP Brewing. You can follow us on Facebook. We have an experimental brewing page there. I'm on uh, a whole bunch of different beer discussion forums out there. Drew uh, hangs out on the Reddit homebrewing forum. So uh, if you uh, run across us, say hi, ask questions if you got them. Oh, and hey, so, don't forget to don't forget to join our brand new email list that you have. You can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, sign up for the email list there. And what that means is that every time we publish new content, you'll just get a quick little email in your box that says, hey, we publish new content. Go read it. Go listen. Please. That's right. That's right. And if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to talk to each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.